Welcome to the Books and Travel podcast. I'm Jo Francis-Penn, thriller and dark fantasy author, bringing you escape and inspiration about unusual and fascinating places, as well as the deeper side of books and travel. You can find the episode show notes at booksandtravel.page, and if you enjoy thrillers set in international locations, download one of my ebooks for free at jfpen.com forward slash free. Hello travellers, I'm Jo Francis-Penn, and in today's interview I'm talking to photographer Derry Brabs about his book Pilgrimage, which is this gorgeous oversized print book which I bought a while back, and I was so thrilled to talk to Derry about some of the wonderful places that he has visited, and why the great cathedrals and well-trodden pilgrimage paths of Europe continue to attract people, even if they are not specifically religious. So I really recommend you check out the show notes for this interview, as Derry kindly shared a whole load of photos about the places we discussed. You can find it at booksandtravel.page forward slash pilgrimage. Now, I always visit the cathedral when I go to a new city. It's always on my itinerary and often some of the other churches too. Certainly in some of the the places in Europe, there's always a couple of churches that are, are awesome. Now, I'm only an amateur photographer, but there's something about the architecture of faith that really attracts me. And you can sometimes find the most surprising things carved into walls or painted into niches. Uh, for example, the Sagrada Familia in Barcelona, which I wrote about in Gates of Hell, has codes uh, in carved into the walls and it has all this different type of architecture going around the church, these different facades. Also, uh, another example, we were in Palma, Mallorca a few years ago, and many people go to Mallorca. It's well known for beaches and, uh, you know, sort of lovely outdoor life. But there is this magnificent Gothic cathedral overlooking the Mediterranean from the old city. And inside there is a altar covering, a baldachin designed by Gaudi, who also did the Sagrada Familia. And at the back of the church, there is a winged skeleton climbing the wall. And I've never seen anything like that. And that features in Valley of Dry Bones, which uh, also features the cathedral in Toledo in Spain and St. Louis Cathedral in New Orleans or New Orleans. I always say it wrong. (laughs) I've also written about St. Paul's in London in my book Delirium. And essentially, I just I just pour this type of architecture into my books. So Um, I can't resist a lovely cathedral. And you can always see pictures on my Instagram at jfpenauthor. Again, my photos are amateur, but I do take a lot of them. Uh, Next time you visit a new place, check out the cathedral or even the local church and see what you might find. So I hope you enjoy this interview with Derry Brabs. Derry Brabs is one of the UK's finest published photographers with over 30 illustrated books to his credit. He's also an author and speaker, and today we're talking about his book, Pilgrimage, Great Pilgrim Routes of Britain and Europe. Welcome, Derry. Hi, how are you? I'm good. It's so great to talk to you. So let's start by talking about why pilgrimage in the first place, because you've written lots of books about heritage and pubs and churches. But what drew you to this particular topic? Well, it it was actually entirely by chance, because during the mid 80s, I was actually doing a photographic project in Spain 
for a book on Spanish food and wine. And when I was in the, the heart of Spain, sort of west of Burgos, I came across some churches that had references to St. James and, and also some old uh, pilgrimage references. And it just tweaked a curiosity button. But, but it was sort of lodged in the brain and nothing happened. And I went on and, and finished that particular job. And sort of years after that, I, I was sort of getting more and more architecturally aware because most of my work had been with landscapes. And the idea had just lain dormant for a few years. And then I got very tied up working with the wonderful Alfred Wainwright on books sort of on the long distance footpaths and in particular in the Lake District. And that sort of sadly came to an end after seven books. And then then I got to do um, my own book on illustrated book on UK's abbeys and monasteries. Uh, and that really got my medieval architectural sort of interest going. And then from the depths of the brain, I remembered the pilgrimage route. And I actually put together a proposal to the publishers and they, they thought it was worth the go. So that was my first book called The Roads to Santiago. And, and that was predominantly the four pilgrim routes through France and then across the Camino Frances to Santiago de Compostela. And I was hooked. <laughs> so when you, I mean, you mentioned there about long distance footpaths. For all these books you've written, have you actually been walking the whole journeys, including these pilgrimages? Well, now, here's a confession, because as <laughs> confession plays a significant role in the act of pilgrimage, I'm, I'm, I'm going to confess first and foremost, is that no, in a word. It would but, take you a long time. <laughs> well, the thing is, if, if I, I worked out that if I was actually walking all the routes that I'd sort of written about and photographed, I'd still be there. Uh, and I wouldn't have really got one book out. But having said that, of course, you have to get, you do a plan of campaign, you work out where you need to be and get from A to B. But of course, when you've got to A, then the, there are several miles to be walked to get to a certain location. You can't drive everywhere um, because a lot of it is um, sort of off piste, as it were. So, of course, walking has to be done. But simply getting to the Pyrenees and saying, right, Santiago, next stop, and we'll see if there are any nice pictures en route. I did so enjoy the walking, but, but you just have to be mindful of the clock ticking. Oh, absolutely. And you actually have another book coming out, Great Pilgrimage Sites of Europe. So clearly it's popular. Uh, so why do you think pilgrimage has had this resurgence even in secular times? The organisation called the Confraternity of St. James, which is uh, sort of very, very significant to all those wanting to do pilgrimage. They're based in London and it was actually formed in 1983, I think, by a group of friends who wanted to promote the pilgrimage to Santiago. And that's gradually grown. But possibly more important was the establishment of the first cultural route by the Council of Europe in 1987 and they adopted the Camino Frances so from the Pyrenees to Santiago de Compostela as that first route and of course with that came promotion public publicity and all of a sudden the roads of Spain on on the route were sort of 
adorned with sort of bright turquoise signposts with the Council of Europe sort of stars dotted around it. And that's, I think, started the, the impetus going. And then that was followed by, of course, UNESCO making the Spanish Camino World Heritage Site in 93. And then five years later, they incorporated the four French routes into the World Heritage Site listing. So it was all building a great worldwide awareness with sort of publicity and then people started writing about it. So it had sort of dwindled to virtually nothing by the mid-80s and then it gradually sort of started to build up and it's just taken off. A lot of people just take a, a week or two weeks vacation and they do a section at a time. And also, I mean, to actually get the uh, Compostela, the document which certifies that you've done it. You, you don't have to do the whole walk through France and across the Pyrenees as people do, but um, sort of do the last 100 kilometres on foot. Yes, um, I learned then... about that. that <laughs> I was like, how do, how do you do this? And in fact, isn't the Del Norte, the route from the north, is, that's the fastest way to, uh, to do it? you come on the boat from the UK and then you can just walk that 100 kilometres south. Well, well I, think it's, I think if you get to Santander on the boat, then, then it's probably a bit, a bit further than that. And, and actually, the, the northern route's got quite a few uncomfortable hilly bits and some sort of up and down coastal routes, but they're all good. They're all good. Except that the, the last time I was on the Camino Francaise, the, that sort of middle section when you're going to the west of Burgos towards Leon uh, and that sort of section there, it's very flat and it's very exposed and there's not a tree in sight. And um, doing that in the middle of summer is not something to be uh, really planned unless you absolutely have no choice. Mm. Well, it's interesting because, of course, a lot of people did pilgrimage for healing as well, didn't they? And we're recording this during the time of, of coronavirus. So maybe there'll be a sort of post-plague surge in, in people walking too. Well, there, there is that. But although you can keep a two metre distance on the Camino itself, when you get to church and um, you want to uh, sort of go to mass, then, then you um, have the problem, don't you? so who's <laughs> yeah. to say <laughs> who's to say well I mean you mentioned the uh, Camino Francaise there and um, that's that's more the sort of well-known route but what are some of the less traveled routes uh, in the book that you particularly love the ones which I really enjoyed discovering for the first time was sort of the the southern route up from Andalusia up to Santiago de Compostela on the Via de la Plata, which a lot of people think is the, the silver route, sort of, which the Romans used to ship their silver down for, to the Mediterranean coasts. But I discovered that actually the, the Plata was derived from an Arabic word for a sort of a, a dusty road sort of thing. And it certainly is that. But it, it's unlike the Camino Frances, uh, the main route. It, it's, it's only just really starting to blossom, but it's very remote and it runs parallel to the Portuguese border up from Seville or wherever you start from the south of Spain. Uh, and it really is quite a hard slog in places because there isn't the infrastructure there yet. It is happening slowly, but it's a wonderful, wonderful taste of Roman Spain and towns such as Merida and Salamanca have got 
glorious architecture and so that was a, a great sort of delight for me personally. The other one, I'd never really been to Germany and of course one forgets that the the linking routes to Santiago de Compostela come from all over Europe and one of the German lakes went from Munich to the shores of Lake Constance and and that opened up a whole new kind of architecture to, to me because I I'd never sort of really got in in touch with German architecture and their Baroque churches were quite incredible and there's such a contrast to the Romanesque and the Gothic architecture that one is so familiar with and to open the church door and walk into this great sort of gallery of art on every wall, every ceiling, every pillar, it really was quite fantastic. And of course the other one which was quite an epic of planning was the Via Francigena which goes from Canterbury to Rome it's just a, a fairly straightforward little sort of trip all the way from England <laughs> over, over the Alps via the Grand St. Bernard Pass. And it's extraordinary, but it was the route first taken by the 10th century Archbishop of Canterbury, Sigeric, who had to journey to Rome to collect his pallium from the Pope. And he decided on the return leg that uh, he ought to document his journey. And so that's why they have all the the routes that he took and that's also been designated a cultural route and a world heritage site in places but I think one of the problems they're having particularly through France is that of course ancient pilgrim routes probably largely followed roads which were established by the Romans and of course the French sort of took the easy route going from north to south by following the Roman roads. So if you wanted to follow the original route, you'd be on a French motorway and you'd be flattened. So that <laughs> it wouldn't are, be very um, pretty. <laughs> no, no, they're, they're just trying to create um, rural routes which uh, run sort of parallel to the original. Coming to Canterbury then, because Canterbury Cathedral, we've got this year is Beckett 2020, which is a celebration of the 850 years since the murder of the Archbishop. So it seems like it's the year for, for doing this kind of thing. Well, yes. The, the last time, and it was quite recently, I tried to photograph Canterbury Cathedral. It was a festival of scaffolding, and which is the one of the drawbacks of being doing what I'm doing is because sure as eggs is eggs whenever I roll up somewhere that there, there will be scaffolding and <laughs> it's, it's the trouble is we take for granted the the longevity of all our medieval buildings and they are wearing away and places such as Canterbury and many other cathedrals they have actually now established their own stone workshops they actually have a permanent team of artisan um, stonemasons and craftsmen who are replicating the work done by their medieval forebears so that they're trying to sort of keep the cathedral going and, and in one piece as it were but seamlessly albeit with some glittering shiny new stone but the style of, of the work that they're doing um, perfectly replicates the original stonemason's work. Wow, that's so great to know though, because I think you feel sometimes that maybe this craft has been lost because people would spend, you know, generations building one thing, wouldn't they? And the, the craft was passed down and that's, it's so great that that's still around. I mean, certainly Bath, the front of Bath Abbey could use some of that. <laughs> 
Uh, well, well, I mean, the, the trouble is, and it also it also varies from region to region. It entirely depends very much on the kind of stone which was used, and so it depends where, where a cathedral was located. The nearest stone quarries of, of viable material. Some were more porous than others, and some were granite and therefore able to resist the elements but many many other stones are quite soft sandstone was a notorious for being able to crumble at the slightest hint of a shower of rain but there we are but when when you think how old these magnificent cathedrals are you just look at some of modern architecture and you think how many of you are going to be standing in 700 years time Mm. Um, you know so there we are yeah i mean going to the sagrada familia for example you know i we won't even see that built in our lifetime or several other lifetimes if you don't get a move on <laughs> but it, yeah it's still an amazing place so i did want to ask about that because clearly you love the sacred architecture you have many pictures what are some of the cathedrals and churches and shrines that stand out for you as as particularly powerful or beautiful i suppose what one one place which sticks in in the memory greatly is Cologne's Catholic Cathedral, and it's renowned as a great pilgrimage de- destination because it houses the shrine of the three Magi, and it still exists. So you go to this glorious cathedral with its pointed twin spires which for many years were the tallest building in Europe and you encounter this great jewel encrusted golden shrine which was the original and survived the reformation and it just makes you realize how incredible it must have been for a humble medieval pilgrim to have gone through all the trials and tribulations of of such a long journey and and then to be rewarded with um, a great symbols such as that and and it's just so sad that the reformation painted out all the wall paintings and and destroyed all the all the wonderful iconography but as to the others well i was particularly taken by siena's cathedral in italy it's just a wonderful wonderful black and white sort of outside and inside the craftsmanship on that is incredible the other thing which i found really moving was the south portal of lausanne cathedral which has got sculpture of the most intense detail and it's retained some of its original partial coloring which gives it an extra tinge and it's one of the finest versions of the assumption of the virgin mary i've encountered Assisi is just another place which is so fantastic because uh, that's somewhere you really do have to approach on foot because it flows down the slopes of a mountain and you can see it from a long way away. Uh, and then right at the foot of the village, the, the, the hillside contains all the gleaming white stone buildings. And then right at the base is the... Uh, basilica and the monastery of saint francis and the basilica there were actually two there's the original romanesque basilica containing the tomb of saint francis and then there's the later gothic one built on top and every square inch of both um, basilicas are covered in the most wonderful wall paintings and frescoes and it's just 
utterly amazing and it's just one of those places which it's it's a dramatic landscape the aura and the atmosphere inside the churches is absolutely serene and so respectful and and the art is just incredible so places such as those they, they just make your journey worthwhile regardless of why you're there Mm, oh, it's just so beautiful. And I wondered, you know, because you're a, a photographer, so you see things in certain ways. What do you prefer? Do you prefer the ornate Catholic icons or the stark Protestant or even monastic uh, lines that you get uh, elsewhere? A bit of both, really. The Catholic versions can, can be quite sort of ornate. Uh, I suppose having been raised in in the Church of England in true Protestant style, we have very basic altars and some of the the more lavish Catholic altar pieces are quite incredible. I do do remember when I was doing pilgrimage in the the centre of Spain, there's a church called La Navarrete and it's one of those where it's very gloomy. Uh, and you go in, you can't really make out what you're looking at. But I was aware that the altarpiece was actually more than an altarpiece. It was just the whole of that West End. And they actually had an electric slot meter. And thankfully, I had a two euro piece and was able to illuminate it up. And, and it's just the, more, the most gold I've ever seen. There was this huge wall of sculpted gold with niches set all the way up to the ceiling with the various representations of the saints and the Virgin Mary was just above the altar itself. And it is reputed that much of this gold was one of the first batches brought back from the New World by Spain when they sailed across the Atlantic and did whatever it is they they were determined to do. But it's just just incredible. And you always expect, when you go to the main cathedrals and and the famous churches, you you expect what you're going to get. You get the magnificent architecture and and the artwork and the sculpture and everything else. But I think one of the joys of pilgrimage is the, is the unexpected and, and also the other great feature of the pilgrimage, which educated people as they went along and just reminded them why they were doing it, was the, the tympanum where you got the Christ in majesty at the top above the door and then below you would get the, the two options open to you. you. You would have St Michael the Archangel with a pair of scales weighing the souls of those people who are dead and appearing before him and you would see the departed being carried aloft by some friendly looking angels and their souls obviously ticked the right boxes and then on the other hand you had some very nasty looking creatures with wide open mouths and nasty people with sort of sharp spears pushing the departed into the jaws of hell and those souls obviously didn't pass muster but to the largely literate medieval pilgrim these were the messages that were driving them on you know I've got to do it I've got to do it otherwise I'm forever doomed (laughs) yeah it's true there are some pretty gruesome things in some churches i mean spain has some particularly nasty decapitations and boiling of saints and things like that portrayed on their altars don't they but i I did want to say it's a really good tip you mentioned there for having a couple of euros to put in the light boxes because that's quite common around the around the place isn't it 
Uh, well, it is. It, it would be very, it'd be lovely if it actually it was more common, but because one of, one of the most frustrating things is going along and you find the interior of the church, which is dark enough as it is, and, and then you rock up in normal hours out, out of service hours, and there's just a 40 watt light bulb just dangling from the ceiling and it takes an awful lot of hard work to do long exposures to get it and then it's doubly galling when when you perhaps go back while there's a service on and the whole place is illuminated with wonderful chandeliers but of course they're not available they don't want to be running electricity so yes if they all had um, a slot meter they could make a load of money and just give you a quick <laughs> glimpse and then uh yeah, and then move on. No, I, I agree with you. So because, you, you're, because you're a photographer, do you think you experience the world differently because you see it through the camera? Well, I don't, I don't well, the world, the world is the world. I mean, I, my, my working life, or a lot of it, has just been working with or against, actually nature is often working against me, but I'm trying to work with nature. But with every year that goes by, you learn something new. And, you know, I can't control the weather and I can't control the light. It's just a question of learning how to be in the right place at the right time. And the internet has been a wonderful boon for somebody like me because with the accurate weather forecasting that you get, it is possible to plan ahead, um, you know, more than just a few days ahead. And, and there's no point in going somewhere if you know that it's going to be sort of dull and cloudy because you need light to bring the stonework to life and, and for stronger light to come through the windows. I mean, like, if you go to the fantastic and utterly mesmerising cathedral at Chartres in France, which is, you know, the, the World Heritage Site of the most fantastic stained glass in Europe and it has recently been cleaned so it's even more beguiling. You need strong light to come through there so you get all the true colours and you, you look at the, the colours of the medieval stained glass and you think, ah, oh, how did they do that? But, you know, just to be... Uh, summer is my favourite time because sunrise is at four o'clock, you know, four o'clock or earlier. And nobody in their right mind is up and around at four o'clock in the morning, except <laughs> loony photographers, but, which is really good because you won't find people wandering around. And when I'm trying to portray a, a wonderful medieval cathedral, what you don't need is a crowd of people with selfie sticks and, and <laughs> umbrellas and wandering around. Uh, so you have the place to yourself and, and, the way that churches are always built um, is also helpful because you know that the east end of a church, which is not always the most picturesque, is going to be lit at sunrise. And the west end, which is where all the decoration is, is going to be sunset. So they're, they're very considerate in that respect. Mm, wow. And you mentioned nature there, and many of your photos are incredible landscapes. So what are some of the most memorable places that have the, that landscape view that you visited? I mean, you, you, you mentioned Assisi, but anything else that stands out? Well, I don't know. Uh, lots and lots of places. I think the, the Grand St. Bernard Pass, which takes the Via Francigena over the Alps, was, was fantastic. I, I still remember it well. It was in spring, late spring, but in the Alps there was still a lot of snow around. And uh, I flew into Geneva Airport and 
everybody collected their luggage and I watched the carousel go round and round and round <laughs> and my bag was not on it. So I had to go through the uh, ritual of reporting a lost bag and all that stuff. The only drawback was that I was travelling in sleeves with just a sleeveless sort of puffer gilet. My tripod and my walking boots were in my bag and I was due to pick up a rental car and drive over the over the Alps and return back in three days. So I thought, okay, well, we'll go for it. And so I went and I had a room booked at the Pilgrim Hostel at the summit of the Grand St. Bernard Pass. And I arrived in the fog. It was dark. There was snow everywhere. And I went out the next morning. And of course, everybody else is in sort of snow boots and thermals and everything else. And then the crazy Englishman appears in his shirt sleeve and starts slithering around taking photographs and they just look at each other with that sort of knowing look of the English. But it was quite interesting because the pictures were a bit a bit bleak and truly represented the, the Alps. But I got the chance to re-photograph it a few months later, not through choice, but because somebody stole my camera bag complete with my passport and the memory card from my camera with a week's work when I was um, near Milan airport. And so I actually ended up going back to the Grand St. Bernard Pass and it was when all the snow had gone. So it gave me a whole new perspective. And the road, the, the Pilgrim Road, which is the old Roman track, which goes over the Alps and approaches the, the Pilgrim settlement right on the summit, it was kind of wonderful because I was able to actually feel and see that I was treading on the stones that the Romans and centuries of pilgrims and possibly even Archbishop Sigurik had trodden on. So that really brought the whole pilgrimage thing to, uh, to the fore, really. The other, the other, the other place that I, I have to mention, which is not actually on the Via Francigena, but it's a very, very minimal detour, are the marble quarries at Carrara, where all the great sculptors used to get their stone from. And it's an incredible network of quarries scattered all over the place. And you look at these sheer rock faces of, of gleaming stone, and you just think of Michelangelo and his Pieta, which is the most awesome work I've ever seen. It's the first thing you see when you enter St. Peter's in Rome. And, and you just look at the soft folded fabric of the Virgin Mary's sort of cloak, cradling her dead son in her arms. And you sort of think, how did he create that from one block of stone? Um, uh, I love that sculpture. I also have photos of that and like her lips. She looks so young. I think that's what's kind of strange about it. She looks about the same age as Jesus, but it is incredibly beautiful sculpture. Well, I, I, I mean, when, when you look at work like that, where stone actually feels as though it has the texture of fabric, you just stand with your jaw dropping loudly and thinking, how did he do that? And in fact, it was the only, I think it was the only work that Michelangelo actually signed himself because there were so many doubters that somebody of his young age could have accomplished such an amazing piece of art. So 
it's interesting you talked about your camera getting stolen and some of the issues with travel but as i said earlier we're recording this at the time of lockdown and we can't travel so i wondered what do you miss about it and what does travel mean to you and your creative work well because i'm i'm not sort of a photographer that goes wandering around with a camera looking for likely targets so I'm, I'm sort of more targeted I suppose. I do enjoy traveling around and, and I do have my camera with me because as I said previously nature throws up some amazing sights when least least expected. D doing the, the, the latest book The Great Pilgrimage Sites of Europe because I've expanded the horizons so much even gone to places I haven't visited before such as Scandinavia and Poland and Slovakia it really was an awful lot to accomplish in just um, 12 months. So it really was kind of a, a military operation, getting all the flights booked. And one thing I have to say is that I am so eternally grateful that I did it in 2019. <laughs> yes. <laughs> did you finish it? Did you finish all, all you needed to do? Yes. So, um, so yeah, when, that when, 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 when things started to go a bit unpleasant for Europe earlier this spring, I was glued to my keyboard trying to grapple with the text with all the images safely in the bag. Mm. Well, it's great that you're doing some of these lesser known places because I feel like France and Spain and Italy get overdone because they're the ones everybody knows about. But there are some really interesting, weird sites, aren't there, in Eastern Europe and Northern Europe. Uh, anything weird you can tease us with so we can go and get the next book? I don't know about weird, but I, I, the greatest treat for me was to go to Poland. The, there's one great feast day in the Catholic calendar, and that's the Assumption of the Virgin, which is August in mid-August. And of course, I, I have one chance to do it, and, and I decided to go to... Um, sort of Poland and, and do it at this wonderful monastery of Jasnogora and it's just incredible because the, there's this iconic painting which is the the sort of the, the national sort of shrine of Poland and the people who go there it was incredible the day before pilgrim groups from all over the country kept arriving and there's a long avenue which is about a mile and a half long going straight through the town and up the hill beyond and it was just an incredible sight and the the sheer devotion of the of the polish people i mean what one is aware of catholicism having such a strong hold in italy spain and france perhaps but to see it in eastern europe was quite incredible it's just such a wonderful church and this great fortified monastery i mean it really was with with sort of sort of 15 foot thick walls and it was sort of built to protect this wonderful iconic painting and she along with i think it's the one in santa maria maggiore in rome they're both supposed to have been painted by saint luke himself ah as in, as in <laughs> yeah uh, and and so but but unfortunately you get things like the scientists and the forensic experts who do tests on things like this and they sort of say well sorry lads it's only 12th century but there you go and it's all about so, faith at the end of the day isn't it <laughs>
Well, it is. This is the, the, the great thing, regardless of what one's personal beliefs are. All these churches and, and the whole act of pilgrimage or, or just going down to your local church and, and having a conversation with the Virgin or whoever it is your devotion is targeted towards. It doesn't matter because that's what matters to that person and that's entirely their business. It's their private world and whatever gives people comfort, particularly in these terrible times that we're enduring at the moment, that that's you know to be to be praised and to be um, respected at all times indeed so your books are, are fantastic but apart from your own books can you recommend a couple of others if people are interested either photography or whatever about pilgrimage or places of faith one book which i found hugely entertaining very readable and very helpful was just a book called pilgrimage by uh, a gentleman called jonathan sumption and he, he actually recently was a Supreme Court judge in England, but it was, I think it was the first book he wrote. And it's just about the whole ethos of medieval pilgrimage, how it evolved. And it's just such an entertaining and enlightening read. If you're doing, if you want to read up about the pilgrimage road to Santiago, there's a, an American author called David Gitlitz, who did a, a very large book, but it is not as a weighty tome in a, an academic kind of a way, but a very enlightening guide for anybody who wants to really sort of uh, brief themselves well in advance. And for a, a big picture book, which is an absolute joy to look at, it's a book called The Madonnas of Europe, and it's by a Polish photographer called Janusz Rossikon. And he, he covers some of the places I've been to, but many, many others, such as pilgrimages in Greece and lots of other far-flung corners of Europe. And it's not all about the Virgin Mary, but everybody has their own sort of icons. And the photography, the documentary photography is just fantastic. And um, I just keep looking at that and thinking, I must go there one day. <laughs> That's how I feel looking at your books. <laughs> that's very kind oh no they're fantastic so where can people find you and your books online there is a facebook page with my name attached to it and my name will direct people to a website fantastic so derrybrabs.com thanks so much for your time derry that was great well listen thank you very much for inviting me it's a great pleasure and, and a huge privilege to be incorporated into the creative world of uh Thanks for joining me today on the Books and Travel podcast. I hope you found a moment of escape. You can find the episode show notes at booksandtravel.page. And if you enjoy thrillers set in international locations, download one of my books for free at jfpen.com forward slash free. Happy travels until next time.